0: coronavirus nz a daily stuff podcast adam i just got an email from countdown dun 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 what does it say what does it say
1: you're just gonna have to wait wtf you could say that the suspense anyway welcome to coronavirus nz for tuesday the 12th of may i'm adam dudding And I'm Eugene Bingham. We bring you
0: the daily headlines, some of the more weird and wonderful aspects of lockdown life, and then focus on one topic. So, you know, we're so close to level two now. Two more sleeps. I couldn't help but keep looking through that list of cancelled events you sent me yesterday, Adam. The Jazz and Cabaret Festival in Christchurch? Wasn't going. What about Backstreet Boys at Spark Arena?
1: Mm, Definitely not. Billy Bragg at the Christchurch Town Hall? Not me, but Steve Kilgallen, our self-proclaimed friend of the show... Would have been keen if he was in the right city, I'm sure. But yeah, when you go through this list, there's a lot we've missed out on, eh? Then again, some stuff's just moved online. Not the Iron Maiden gig, but yesterday we said the New Zealand Book Awards were off, but that was a bit of a misspeak. Not quite right. The real-life event with mink coats and canapes is off, but the awards are going ahead online. Tonight, in fact, on Tuesday. The New Zealand Media Awards are going to do the same later this month, actually.
0: Shame about Iron Maiden, but you know you can still listen to your Iron Maiden records, Adam. So don't be sad. Rock on.
1: Anyway, later on the show we talk with Stuff Press Gallery reporter Thomas Coglin about the legal showdown that's brewing over the laws that let New Zealand go into lockdown. Was it even legal to impose level three and four restrictions on the entire country? But first, what's happened today?
0: Another zero day. No new cases of COVID-19 today. Just two people remain in hospital, neither in intensive care. And of the almost 1,500 cases the country has had, 93% are now classified as recovered.
1: At a press conference, Foreign Minister Winston Peters said New Zealand needs to stand up for itself, even against China. Peters has thrown his support behind a push to have Taiwan joined the World Health Organization as an observer. China is not happy with the move and says it could damage bilateral ties between New Zealand and China. But Peter says, hey, friends should be able to disagree.
0: And Germany is the latest country to see an acceleration in new cases after easing its lockdown. South Korea, remember, got a big cluster of infections at Seoul nightclubs soon after lifting restrictions. Now experts in Germany say their R0 value, the reproduction rate, has crept back up over 1% the critical tipping point at which exponential growth comes into play. So there's a really curious case that has emerged in Auckland about a woman who tested positive after being released from prison. It throws up all sorts of questions. Stuff reporter George Block has been covering it. We've got him on the line. Hi, George. Hi, Eugene. So you are in the office today, but it's very lonesome.
2: I am, yes, just me and visual journalist Jason Dore today. So so this woman
0: was taken into custody on April 29. Why?
2: That's right. Well, the details remain a bit murky, but what we know is that she allegedly refused to undergo a medical examination. That's an offence under the Health Act, carrying a maximum $500 fine. We don't even know if she actually refused a COVID-19 test. Presumably she did, but the charge is just refusing to undergo a medical examination under the direction of an authorised person. What do we know about her? Well, she flew in from the United States, landed at Auckland International Airport on April 25. And at that stage, she would have gone into either mandatory government-managed isolation or quarantine at a secure facility, depending on whether or not she showed symptoms. She, she's in her 20s, And the only other thing we really know is that she seems to have links to the Palmerston North Manawatu area Um, on the Ministry of Health website where it lists the confirmed cases. She's one of the most recent ones and the administrating DHB is mid-central suggesting a sort of Palmerston North link. So
0: when she was taken into custody four days after arriving in the country, where was she taken?
2: She was taken to Auckland Region Women's Corrections Facility and quarantined there.
0: Obviously there's concern about her being a coronavirus risk having flown into the country. So what steps did the prison take to protect staff and other prisoners?
2: Well, it seems like they took quite good steps. Um, Corrections Association President Alan Whitley said staff who dealt with her were complimentary about the level of PPE that was provided. The regional commissioner, um, Lynette Cave, told me that during her 10 days in prison, the woman had no contact with any other prisoners. The cell she was in had its own adjoining yard. Phone calls were made on a phone that was taken to her cell, then sanitised following each use. And then the audio-visual booth for her court appearances was cleaned after each use. However, other prisoners who had used that booth have been tested as a precaution. There's four prisoners, I think, as of yesterday, they were awaiting their test results. And about five staff who had had contact with a woman while wearing PPE uh, are also awaiting their test result.
0: Right, so she spent a week or so in prison and then, and then she got bail last Friday. What happened then?
2: Yes, so she spent 10 days total at the woman's prison in worry she appeared in court on Friday, May 8, where she consented to a COVID-19 test. She was then tested. Later on Friday, she appeared in court again via audiovisual link. And once it was confirmed she'd taken the test, the court granted her bail to a secure address where she is subject to a range of strict conditions. And police say they're working with the Ministry of Health to ensure she adheres to self-isolation requirements.
0: And did the re- result of the test come back?
2: The result came back the following day on the Saturday. It was positive and then it was announced by the Ministry of Health on the Sunday. Caused some um, questions to be raised because she actually it appeared as though she'd tested positive some weeks after arriving or two weeks after arriving from the United States. On that Monday, I got a tip to look into where she was quarantined and that's how we got into this story.
0: We've seen overseas what happens when coronavirus gets into a prison. It must have been quite scary for authorities dealing with this case.
2: Yeah, really scary. There's been some terrible cases overseas. I think at Rikers Island in New York, they've had 700 people infected with coronavirus. The majority, about 440, were guards. And they've had um, at least six deaths. I think more across across New York's jail system. In Brazil, there's been riots in prisons and protests against the restrictions, you know, lack of visitation rights. In New Zealand, we've sort of escaped that. There's been three correction staff who have tested positive. They've all recovered. I don't think any of them had any contact with prisoners. And aside from this person, no prisoner has has tested positive.
0: Do we know if this is the only test-related arrest?
2: I'm not aware of any others. Um, It's certainly the only prisoner so far who's been confirmed as having had COVID-19.
0: Well, it's certainly a, a strange case, and I'm sure there's more to come on it. So thanks for letting us know about it, George.
2: Thanks, guys. Cheers.
0: Jane, what's on your mind? Well, the thing about an emerging disease like COVID-19 is that the science is emerging too, right? And so we've seen plenty of debate about some things which, on the face of it... Ha! <laughs> sorry, you'll get that in a second. They should seem straightforward. Take masks. See what I did there? Accidentally, of course. Anyway, the science is really contested and you've got debate about whether or not they're a useful tool for the general public amongst frontline health workers, no question. But for Joe and Mary blogs out and about, hmm, depends on who you ask. So in New Zealand, we've had Dr. Michael Baker, who's you know a really well-respected epidemiologist from Otago University saying, look, I'd like to see them recommended for people travelling on public transport and planes and things like that. And then yesterday, we heard from Dr. Ashley Bloomfield say, hmm, I'm not comfortable recommending that. And he cited a review done by the Ministry of Health. I went and dug the review out, and not surprisingly, given Dr. Bloomfield's stance, the ministry review is dismissive of the practice. First, it points out that there's been no clinical trials on the efficacy of public face coverings.
1: Well, duh. I mean, that's not all that surprising, is it, given that the world didn't even know about COVID-19 until January? When when would there have been time for clinical trials?
0: OK, thanks, Einstein. It then points out that the World Health Organisation is still sitting on the fence, saying there's no evidence to recommend for or against their use. The Ministry's review spends quite a bit of time looking at Singapore, which made public mask-wearing compulsory on April 15. But since then, the daily number of new cases is still higher than before the new rule came in. Well, that was at the time the review was published. And of course... The Ministry points out that there's evidence the masks themselves could become a risk, especially if they're not worn properly or they become wet. I was going to say moist, but I didn't want to become a Justin Trudeau type meme. Anyway, given all that, it's not surprising that Dr. Bloomfield has disagreed with Dr. Baker. But there's still plenty of debate going on. A review of the evidence was recently posted on Preprint. This is one of those websites that publishes scientific articles before they've had a chance to be peer-reviewed, so that needs to be taken into consideration. Anyway... This particular review, which has been cited by the New York Times as an example of the increasing scientific backing of mask wearing, was by scientists from the University of San Francisco and Oxford University and other places, and it concluded that, based on all the literature around the world at this time, masks were a good thing. And they wrote, "'We recommend the adoption of public cloth mask wearing as an effective form of source control in conjunction with existing hygiene, distancing and contact tracing strategies.' But if you look at the comments from other scientists under that article on preprint, there are dozens and dozens of people pushing back saying, yeah, but...
1: I kind of wonder about the way the advice on masks won't settle. I mean, scientists aren't particularly disagreeing that social distancing works or that a vaccine will be worth having or that washing your hands is good, but masks just keeps on going back and forth. Um, And one of the factors that's being cited by some health authorities is that Everyone wears masks in low-risk settings. There could be shortages for where they're definitely needed, such as in hospitals. So you're balancing different harms. And I I guess that makes some sense. But it feels a bit like the arguments that I've heard about bike helmets. You know, it's obvious that if you fall on your head, it's better to have a helmet on than not. But at the same time, it's been strongly argued that making bike helmets compulsory is a bad idea because people don't like helmets much, so they will cycle less. And that's bad in the long run because exercise makes you healthy. And personally, as far as that bike helmet argument goes, I always thought that argument was daft because it doesn't seem to account for the fact that if helmets become socially normalised, the refuseniks are quite likely to stop refusing, and we'll all be better protected, and we'll still be getting the exercise. But anyway, the other thing that that's curious to me about the mask advice is how it varies so much from country to country. You know, New Zealand's optional; the UK is pretty vague. Um, Most Asian countries are really pro-mask. You're saying Singapore are into it. Um, And then in the US, the Centre for Disease Control, the CDC, uh, relatively recently has started recommending that people do wear them in public. And in the White House, everyone is going to wear them from now on. Well, everyone except for one person. I'll let you guess who. It's extra complicated in America because for some reason, like I was saying the other day, at this point in the union's history, everything quickly becomes political and partisan And divisive. So not only have you got the president refusing to wear one. Did you guess right? But you've got protesters who are comparing masks to Muslim face veils. And not in a positive way. Or the shopper at a San Diego supermarket where masks were compulsory who decided to wear a Ku Klux Klan hood into the store. It's a horror show. Email inbox.
0: So our email is viruspod at stuff. nz, and don't forget you can drop us. Hey, a hey,
1: line. hey, you said you said you said you got an email from Countdown. Ah, uh, yeah, I did, I did. So what was that about? They the got back to you about flour and about uh, WTF and tartaric acid and yeast and baking powder. They're, I've seen a bit of flour down at our supermarket, but they're still pretty short on some of those other important ingredients. I mean, so all is revealed, huh?
0: Oh, no, it was just a press release about safety and hygiene remaining a priority at Countdown Level 2. That that was all. Sorry about that.
1: Eugene Bingham, you are a tease. Actually, I got an email today from Les Mills. They said they're opening up again, that's the gym, uh, and they're going to start taking my money off me again each month. Thank you very much. So that's good news, I guess.
0: Yeah. Plague playlist. Hey... By the way, Adam, have you been auditioning someone to come in with a live performance? So I've heard a bit of clarinet
1: today. Yes, there is an unreschedulable clarinet lesson taking place on Zoom in the room that is very close to this room and separated by relatively thin walls. Um, so I was going to apologise, but actually I don't think we need to apologise for bringing um, great clarinet scales dimly at the back of recording to the New Zealand public. Anyway, uh, but yes, play, playlist. Just before we actually get to playing a bit, there's something that I, I, I think is pertinent to the play playlist. So, look, I love science, but sometimes I'm not sure about those studies you see which set out to confirm the blindingly obvious. You know, researchers have discovered that chocolate makes you happy or that um, a, a study from Belgium confirms that a punch in the face annoys 8 out of 10 people. And so now a bunch of scientists from Finland this time have uh, looked into another big question. They're asking... When you're living through a global pandemic, does listening to music make you feel better? Well, uh, they could have called us at Coronavirus NZ. I mean, why do you think we have the play playlist in the first place? We don't just play all these fragments of parody songs from YouTube to pad out the show and give us a break from talking so much. It's because we want you, the listener, to be as happy as possible in these troubled times. Of course, music is the medicine of COVID as well as the food of love. Anyway... The fact that they already know the answer hasn't put off these researchers at the Interdisciplinary Music Research Group at the University of Give me a moment while I check the pronunciation on YouTube. UScular. <S-U-L-E. S-U-L-E>. University of UScular, maybe who have launched an online survey and a press release about it landed in my inbox yesterday. It says the online survey, which takes about 30 minutes to complete, asks participants about their current living situation, their levels of stress and anxiety and how they have engaged with music during the past few weeks. Quote, we want to hear from anyone and everyone, says Dr. Emily Carlson, music therapist and postdoctoral researcher. Whether you think the way you use music has changed or not, we're hoping to get participants from all over the world. So, if you like music, if you've been living through a pandemic, if this idea floats your boat, or actually even if you just want to ruin their survey I take part in, saying, no, I listen to music because it makes me feel angry and depressed. Anyway, we've put a link to the survey in the show notes of this episode.
0: You finished, Adam? You got quite wound up there. I think you need to lie down. Why don't I chip in with an actual Plague playlist offering today? Well, it's not entirely a music offering, but bear with me. Hello. <laughs> Remember this from a few weeks back?
1: Baked potato changed my life.
2: Baked potato showed me the way.
1: However, could
2: we forget? You want
0: That's right. From the wonderfully clever Matt Lucas, who repurposed his genius song from years past as a fundraiser for the NHS in Britain, and to provide a PSA about things you should do to avoid getting sick. Don't do it. Don't. Don't. Thank you, baked potato. <sighs> Anyway, Matt Lucas has gone viral again with another piece of brilliance, this time mimicking UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his somewhat confusing messages about the lifting of lockdown restrictions there.
2: So we are saying don't go to work, go to work, don't take public
0: transport, go to work, don't go to work, stay indoors, if you can work from home, go to work, don't go to work, go outside, don't go outside, and, uh, and then we will or won't uh, do something or other. Brilliant. Have we got time for a joke from the Lorenzen family's isolation joke station?
1: We have always got time for the Lorenzen family's isolation joke station.
0: What wouldn't you find in a haunted house? I don't know. A living room?
1: I, I don't get it. <laughs> What's Ghosts? Well, we went into lockdown and the government drove a truck through a huge number of our fundamental human rights. We lost our rights of worship and rights of assembly and our right not to be arbitrarily detained. We lost our right to freedom of movement, our freedom of association, and most importantly, our ability to sell and buy takeaways. But by and large, New Zealanders
0: accepted all this because, you know, there's a pandemic on. But then someone went to court claiming the lockdown might not have been legal. And that's when things got really interesting. Thomas Coghlan is a Stuff Gallery reporter and he's been following all of this and, and knows it inside out. Hi, Thomas. Hi. Thomas, let's go back to the beginning. When the government first considered sending us into lockdown, how did it justify it?
3: Well, uh, it's fairly obvious that uh, New Zealand's facing the biggest public health crisis um, since the Spanish flu. Um, something needed to be done. Obviously, the, uh, the epidemic evidence at the time was pointing towards these lockdowns which were... Um, Successfully bending the curve in China and other parts of the world, um, New Zealand essentially sort of took an off-the-shelf solution from those countries and implemented it here. And obviously, the epidemiological side of this has um, has been very successful. We we picked the right solution and it worked. Now, interestingly enough, there aren't laws that say um, if you want to shut down the country, this is how. Um, and there's probably a good reason for that, right? <laughs> you can imagine some government saying, let's shut down only in areas that voted for the other guys. So actually taking the epidemiological advice um, and turning it into something that is actually practicable uh, in a legal sense is, is really difficult.
0: So what specifically are they accused of having got wrong?
3: There was obviously a challenge over these compassionate reviews for people who were placed into mandatory quarantine, who had people that they needed to see who were dying, Those compassionate reviews weren't applied uh, very well initially. They were actually all declined by health officials. So those were challenged. One thing that uh, hasn't been challenged so much but was a live issue for the government were the human rights implications. So last week, I got a cabinet paper which lays out some of the human rights implications. And it quotes advice uh, or digests advice from the Solicitor General, um, who's the government's lawyer. And the Solicitor General is quite frank, and uh, she says this is you know, one of the biggest um, curtailments of human rights in New Zealand's history. Now, New Zealand's human rights are pretty flexible, And the advice from the Solicitor General is that, you know, you also obviously have the right to not die in a pandemic. Hmm. Um, And if the health risks were justified, and she cites the advice from the Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, that actually, you know, this lockdown is the way to get on top of this virus. This this lockdown is the way to ensure that, you know, tens of thousands of New Zealanders don't die. So if those risks are real, then actually those curtailments of human rights are justified because those human rights that you've lost or that, that have been curtailed are balanced against your, your fundamental right to life, I guess.
1: What gave the government the permission in, to, in terms of laws? Are there, is there an act sitting there saying, hey, you can throw all the other laws out for a bit during an epidemic or not?
3: For obvious reasons, there isn't a law that essentially says you can, you know, lock down the country like this. We've got obviously emergency powers that governments can give themselves: the Civil Defence Act, the Health Act. Um, so governments can, in an emergency, do incredible things um, with very little scrutiny. What sits behind level three um, is mainly are mainly powers that come from the Health Act. The Health Act is a piece of legislation that was written in the 50s, um, and it gives the medical officers of health these extraordinary powers to quarantine people and to enact a whole um, bunch of uh, curtailments on on movement and life um, in the interest of protecting the country from an epidemic. Now, this Act wasn't written for a pandemic like we now find ourselves in. And it's pretty obvious that the government, um, when it put the country into lockdown, was looking for whatever legal mechanism it could use to, to do that. And obviously, it, it, it seized upon this Health Act and a lot of lawyers are now saying that actually, what would have been the more elegant and and probably effective way of of doing this would be to actually pass legislation saying, you know, hey, look, this is the lockdown, this is what it means, this is how it works. Instead, the director general issued a, a section seventy notice under the Health Act, and the section seventy notice essentially says, you know, all New Zealanders apart from essential workers have to stay in their homes. They have to effectively quarantine themselves. And you know, who's an essential worker? Well. MB will tell you that. And that's raised a whole bunch of legal questions.
1: What is the nature of the legal challenge that they're facing?
3: Well, the first, the first legal challenge um, came from two people who were called up for essentially breaching the lockdown. They um, took Jacinda Ardern to court and um, they challenged their detention on the grounds of habeas corpus. It's a very old legal writ. Literally, it means "where is the body?" and it essentially asks why they are detained. You know, and that's that's essentially um, asking asking the government to say, "Well, you know, if you've if you've called me up for for this, well, what are your grounds for doing so?" The, the judge uh, at court essentially said, "Well, you know, you're not detained." I think he even asked. Um, the two people who were claiming this, whether they've been out to the shops and whether they've exercised. And of course, these two people said, Well, yes, we have. <laughs> and so he was able to he was able to say, Well, then, you know, you're not exactly detained, are you? But he was also in the court um, able to say, actually, um, despite the fact that this habeas corpus action was is is probably not the way to question the lockdown, um, there are some unanswered questions about the way that the lockdown has been implemented. And there are some unanswered legal questions about the sorts of powers that the government has used. And so uh, Andrew Borrowdale, who used to draft laws for the Parliamentary Council Office, uh, is seeking a judicial review of the government's lockdown decisions by challenging Ashley Bloomfield in court. He's outlined his case. It's a very narrow case uh, so that that it doesn't necessarily um, require the Crown to come to court with a whole lot of extraneous sort of information. And he's essentially saying, has Ashley Bloomfield used those Health Act Section 17 notices in the way that Uh, the statute intended them to be used? Or has he he gone ultra-VRAs, which means beyond the law? Has he used those um, Section 70 notices to actually enforce powers that the the Health Act doesn't give him? And that's really important in terms of just our wider legal system is that even though it's very important for um, health officials like Ashley Bloomfield to be able to enact these health measures, it's also important that... Officials aren't allowed to claim powers that they don't have. And that's sort of what's been questioned here.
0: What, what's he seeking? What would be the result of this
3: court case? If he's right and the Section 70 orders are actually found to have claimed powers for the government uh, that they don't have, then some of the people who have been charged with breaching the lockdown could actually then um, claim that, they, that that those charges sorry, were unlawful. And... Mm. Um, they could uh, then bring an action against the government to uh, get some sort of compensation for that. So that's quite serious. You know, we don't have a um, supreme law like in the United States. This isn't like taking the government to the Supreme Court to then get the lockdown, you know, thrown out and ended. Um, Parliament can do whatever it likes. And if, if Ashley Bloomfield is found to have then claimed powers that he didn't already have, I expect that Parliament would probably pass a law that allows the government to do what it... It actually has done, not retrospectively, but in the future. Mm. And that's actually essentially what's happening at the moment. There's a law that will be um, passed this week which will give effect to Level 2 so Level 2 isn't going to be enacted using the same powers. It's going to There will be a law that's passed in Parliament, signed off by the Governor-General, that essentially says, you know, this is what Level 2 is, this is what you're allowed to do, this is what you're not allowed to do. It's much cleaner right. than using these um, Section 70 notices. So there's kind of an implication, although the government does deny this, that the government's thinking, you know what, <laughs> this might not have been the way to do it. Mm. But, and, and interestingly, of course, Andrew Borrowdale also makes the point that, hey, look, I'm not, you know, I'm not arguing with the epidemiological evidence here. The lockdown was probably the right thing to do from health grounds. But it's really important for just the legal health, the constitutional health of the country, that if we're going to curtail people's rights like this, we do it in the right way.
1: Has Andrew Borrowdale taken this kind of action before, or is this the first time that he's sort of stood up for New Zealand's constitutional arrangements?
3: Yeah, no, no, he hasn't. And he's not, you know, one of those serial litigants. He is a former law drafter for the parliamentary council office. I think the implication is that here's a guy who who has a deep appreciation for what the literal letter of the law is, and an appreciation for ensuring that those laws, especially when they curtail fundamental human rights, making sure that they actually do what they say they're going to do, and that people who are using them are using them in the way that they are intended and not going beyond them.
0: I mean, by and large, most people went along with these rules and, and the lockdown is achieving its goals. So it's not so much about this pandemic, is it? It's it's those wider issues. What are they?
3: So the, the original wording of the Health Act is essentially if there's an outbreak of some kind of contagious disease somewhere in the country, then the regional officer of health can quarantine people which kind of makes sense from the perspective of 1950. If there's been an outbreak of a contagious disease at a primary school in Dunedin, the regional officer of health could say, all of the children who go to that school, the teachers, their parents, families, you should quarantine yourselves um, whilst we get on top of this. But you can't then use that to say everyone in Auckland should also quarantine because that is... You know, obviously ridiculous. Now, the way that the current interpretation has been in the Section 70 orders uh, that it notices that have been issued has been to say the specified people, which is the, the language that it uses, the specified people aren't just, you know, specific people. It's all of us. We've all been quarantined, even though all of us are obviously not infected with or at risk of of COVID-19. It's the way that it's used that language to, to claim quite an extreme power from quite a limited power. That's a question now. And you can see why that is serious, because here you have something in the law that seems really logical. Look, these people are at risk. They should stay home. The rest of the country can go about its business. And now the government's saying, actually, the whole country's at risk of COVID-19. You all have to stay home. You're all quarantined. And obviously in the current environment, that seems really logical because actually we kind of are all at risk from COVID-19 and we kind of are all a danger to each other. But the deeper constitutional issue is that, say, Robert Muldoon during the 1981 Springbok riots used this legislation to say, right, you know, everyone without a ticket to the game quarantine. Robert Muldoon's Prime Minister couldn't do that. He'd have to force his Director General of Health to do it as well. It's a, it's a power that resides in the, in the health officials. But it's when, you, when you're claiming such massive powers for yourself, it's really very important for the rule of law that it's done appropriately. And so even though it might be justified on health grounds, the administrative side of things is where the, where the real questions are at the moment because we've got to make sure that administratively the powers that the government needs actually match up with the power that it's given itself. And when you're when you're in a country like New Zealand, which you know we don't really have massive constitutional checks and balances like the Americans do, we've really got to make sure that our laws are are quite tight in this regard because these powers are immense.
0: Thank you so much for explaining it to us, Thomas Coughlin.
3: No worries. Thanks.
1: That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Tuesday the 12th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Thomas Coughlin, George Block, Alice Liu, Catherine George, John Harderfeld, Carol Hirschfeld and the unnamed clarinet player. In case you don't already know this, you can catch us on all the podcast apps
0: and the Stuff website. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. And you can support Stuff's journalism, should you wish, by making a financial contribution via a link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz.
1: Near all.